All right, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll remind you as you're turning there that this sermon series in the afternoons is not 1 Thessalonians, it's the Thessalonian epistles. So we are finishing 1 Thessalonians today. That doesn't mean we're done with this series. We have three chapters in 2 Thessalonians to cover next. The second letter Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. But this does this is a significant mile marker nonetheless as we finish his first epistle to them. As he wraps up his letter, Paul, as he often does in many of his letters, he has two benedictions along with some other uh, brief things he has to say. Uh, often commentators call these the benediction of peace and the benediction of grace. And we see that here as well. He said a lot to this church, which is a very young church, which he himself planted, but he, he was torn away from before he would have chosen because of persecution. And he had been very concerned as he had left them prematurely, that Satan might get the better of them. He might even turn some of them away from the faith. Uh, That church might not be a church when Paul checked back with them. Satan hindered Paul himself from going back to Thessalonica more than once. Finally, finally Paul sent his associate, his younger protege, Timothy, to check on them. And the report Timothy brought back was, was wonderful. There were, like in any church, Problems or possible seeds of problems. But on the whole, they, they were steadfast in the faith. They did not listen to the slanders against the apostle who had planted their church. They did not listen to slanders against the gospel. They were being persecuted by their countrymen as well as by the Jewish synagogue in town, but they were steadfast. Now, there were possible issues indicated by various things Paul says. For instance, he reminds them this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He also gently at this point uh, reminds them everyone is to lead a quiet life, working with their own hands, uh, doing their own job and their own vocation, uh, not not being moochers, uh, parasites, depending on others for no good reason. Um, and, and they were not to be busybodies, stirring up trouble where there didn't need to be any. Um, so there were these little, these matters which um, were possible issues. And some of them will show up again in Second Thessalonians <laughs> as bigger issues at that point. But in all this... Paul is encouraging them to continue on the path uh, of holiness, of sanctification. Sanctification, again, in the Greek is just the same word for holiness. Um, Growing in holiness in likeness to our holy God, and thus in fellowship with him. We are made holy positionally and definitively, um, positionally with justification, when we are justified in Christ in the first place and we are made, given a holy new nature in the new birth, but then we grow in practical holiness in every aspect of our lives, call that progressive sanctification. And one day there will be final 
sanctification. Where we will have no sin left, but positively, you could say, we will be thoroughly, completely holy. And that's where Paul turns his attention now as he closes the letter. Holiness completed. Holiness completed. Let's just read verses 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If we want to draw these various thoughts together, I think the big idea would be that God's children share his grace and peace with a view to their final holiness. We as God's children, as brothers, share God's grace and peace with a view to, with our eyes on, our final holiness, our final sanctification. First of all, we'll look at the benediction of peace, verses 23 through 24, where Paul, this is the most wordy part, I guess, of this section, the benediction of peace. It's a final prayer for complete sanctification. It's a complete fulfillment that we see at Jesus' coming, and it's, it reflects a sure calling by a faithful God. First of all, a final prayer for complete sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. I hope it shakes you to your core in in a positive sense and yet stabilizes you as you realize that this is God's job. It's God's doing, your sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Our progressive and final sanctification, the process and result of becoming entirely holy, that all depends on God's power and faithfulness, not ours. That is not to say, of course, that is not to contradict, of course, everything else Paul himself even says, that that we have responsibility and that the process will involve our hard work. Nevertheless, God has not left it up to us in the ultimate sense. The process and result of becoming entirely holy depends on God's power and faithfulness, not ours. He preserves his own. More than that, he causes his own to persevere in the faith and by faith in holiness and likeness to himself in being transformed by the renewing of their minds as they see his glory in the scriptures and are changed into the same image. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul can even command them to work hard at working out their salvation, And do it with fear and trembling, do it serious-mindedly, but do it with the assurance that it is God who is empowering and and assuring uh, the results. 
It's God, as you work, it's God working in you, both in your desires to will and in your actions to work for his good pleasure. God does not leave us on our own after salvation to to see what we're made of and how we'll do. Yes, he reveals to us through trials that we are not made of anything all that impressive. (laughs) He lets us see our weakness along the way out of love. But it's not as if even at some point God had us on training wheels and was, you know, did your dad do this? Um, then you're off training wheels and your dad is, is holding the bike up as you're pedaling along and then he lets go. There wasn't even a point in our, your Christian life where God let go of the bike and now you're just pedaling that bike all by yourself. It's not the Christian life in this sense. He's working in you every step of the way. That's, that's very powerfully assuring if you grasp it. May the God of peace himself, the one who is all about peace, not just the absence of conflict, but peace with him, a good relationship with him, with all of its blessings, all of its calming qualities, all of its bountiful goodness. May the God of peace bring about this peace in your life as he makes you completely holy. And there will be a complete fulfillment of that. It's being fulfilled now in your Christian life. God's at work in you now, but it'll all become perfectly the way it should be one day. Notice it doesn't say here, and there's a good reason. It doesn't say when you die and see the Lord. It is true that in your spirit, you will go immediately to be with the Lord in death as a believer. It is true that you will be unspeakably holy and happy in your spirit with Christ in heaven. But there's an even greater day after that. It's the day of the resurrection when all of you, spirit, soul, and body will be perfect. And that's what Paul's drawing their attention to here. A complete fulfillment at Jesus' coming. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming. The parousia, we've heard that term before. The coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just quickly, uh, I'll quickly address this. It's not the point of the text, so I don't want to make it the point. But um, some like to cherry pick this as a proof text for a particular view of the makeup of the human nature. That uh, Some who would say we are made up of three parts somehow, spirit, soul, and body. Uh, It's not that people are heretics if they believe that, not at all. Um, Some heretical things could be done with that, perhaps, if they take it certain directions, but but, uh, it's not a heretical point of view. But I am a dichotomist, as as, uh, many in the history of the church would be, and say, if you want to divide the human nature, the basic division in Scripture is soul, soul or spirit, on the one hand, and body, the invisible and the visible, um, but the, the scripture uh, isn't just that simple about it. It uses a lot of different terms to describe various aspects of who we are as people. Your heart, your soul, your spirit, your mind, uh, your body. And, but, but, you know, it's pretty complex also. But as Gary Shogren says here, 
Paul heaps up language and uses the triad, your spirit and soul and body. Some use this verse as a proof text for the tripartite view of human nature. That is, that an individual is composed of three sections. While that is a possible reading, the context and other biblical passages must be brought to bear. First, the scriptures in general, and Paul in particular, uses strings of nouns to describe the entirety of the human person. That is, you'll often hear scripture using strings of different words to kind of pile up terms for who we are. Uh, He mentions Deuteronomy 6.5, heart, soul, and strength. It's not saying the heart is completely different than the soul. (laughs) And then the strength is just piling up terms. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, uh, heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6 says. Uh, But he says, few scholars argue that that teaches a three-part human nature, heart, soul, strength. Uh, Nor when Jesus refers to that verse in Matthew 22. Or in Mark 12, it says Jesus actually said, um, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's four parts. Uh, That's not saying we're four parts as human beings. Uh, And elsewhere, Paul often just uses two parts, like 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He talks about spirit and body. Um, And he's not leaving out the soul when he does that. So anyway, sometimes scripture isn't trying to make a point, uh, such a specific point. It's just piling up terms to... uh, It's using effusive language. It's... 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 Building to something. But one thing is important to note, and that is that sanctification includes both the outer and inner person. May even your body be sanctified, he says here, in the end, right? So, the ancient Gnostics took this to a real extreme, but some people still have the same basic weird idea that Maybe what I do with my spirit is the important part to God, not so much with what I do with my body. But of course, that's not biblical, is it? Uh, sanctification involves all of us. <laughs> From the innermost depths of our being to the outermost parts of who we are, right? If I do something with my body, that's me doing it. So, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, yeah, of, of course, this can be taken the other direction where people can think of something as defiling their body when it has nothing to do with sin. Like the Pharisees, you didn't wash your hands ceremonially the right way. Um But sanctification involves even our bodies. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1. Romans 8, 10 through 11, Paul says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit, in the context of the Holy Spirit, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God doesn't just care to redeem your soul or your spirit. God is out to redeem all of you. If you're in Christ, he raised his son bodily from the dead. And he will raise you bodily from the dead. Or, if you're not dead when Christ returns, he'll transform your body instantly to be like Christ's own body. Which is what the next verse, Philippians 3, says. 
verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of our current body, current flesh, as a temporary dwelling, a tent. He's not disrespecting our current body, but he's realizing it's fallen in a fallen world, and so it's not a palace, it's a tent. And he speaks of death as the time when our earthly home tent is destroyed, but he says when that happens... We still have the hope of the resurrection. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, a better body. Those scripture also teaches it has continuity with this body. It's this body raised and transformed. <laughs> and in view of all that, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, starting in verse 9, whether we are at home or away, that is, whether we're at home in the body or away with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is another topic, but he's speaking here of the general judgment before which everyone, believer and unbeliever, will appear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So yes, God cares what's done in our body. Because it's not even as if our body is just part of our existence for a little while and then one day we'll be free of our body forever. No. God so honors our body as part of who he's made us to be that he will glorify it to be an eternal body like Christ's eternal body one day. And we will give account for what we've done in this body one day, whether good or bad. Well, He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's been talking all about the coming of Jesus Christ as a big theme all throughout this letter, hasn't he? Chapter 1, they were turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. First Thessalonians 3, verse 12, he said, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. First Thessalonians 4, Paul uh, taught at length about the coming of the Lord, especially referring to Christians who had already died. What happens to them? Well, they will rise from their tombs first, and then together, all of us, whether we're living or dead, a moment ago, we will all rise glorified to meet the Lord in the air. And First Thessalonians five nine: For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep at that time. We might live with him. All this, of course, is very much like what the Apostle John says, 1 John 3, 2. When he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. 
you thought about that moment. How God chooses, how God tells us he chooses to transform us on that day. It will be the sight of Jesus Christ looking him full in the face in his glory. We're already reconciled to him, made right with him. But when we see him face to face in the flesh, that glory will shoot through every part of our human being and we'll never be the same. We won't want to sin anymore. We will have the right affections ever after that. We'll have the willpower ever after that. We'll have a body finally fit for eternal life and fit for a holy, uh, fit for the Holy Spirit to energize forever. Fit for a perfect soul. But it'll be when we look at Him, and it transforms us. We'll be blameless. But again, notice God used this process now that we're going through as as a process that will end in that result. He's already working on us. This is not unrelated to that. This is not immaterial to that day. We are becoming now what we will forever be in holiness. And this is all third, based on a sure calling by a faithful God. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul is not just saying, may God do this. I sure hope he does. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. More literally, uh, in the word order, faithful the one who calls you, who also will do it. Which is similar to Isaiah 49.7 in the Greek translation they used back then. Faithful is the Holy One of Israel, and I chose you. God's the one who called you to all this in the first place. Paul already said that in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, it's God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The reason we shall be holy as he is holy is because that was the purpose of his calling in the first place. You think he's going to abandon that? The almighty God for whom nothing is too difficult or even hard? You think he's going to throw up his hands midway through? I called them, knowing what everything they would be like. I called them way back then to this result, but eh, I got tired. I'm tired of them now. There they go in the trash heap. No. He's faithful. God doesn't change, and he doesn't change his mind. And his calling of you was not because you were good in the first place. It was to make you good. So he'll do it. He is the one who called us in the first place, and he is the one who will finish what he started. As someone has said, rather than asking whether a true believer, a Christian, can lose his salvation, that's a bad way to ask that theological question. Can a Christian lose his salvation? We should actually ask, can God lose a Christian? That's the real question. And the answer is obvious then. No. 
1 Corinthians 1, 7-9, Paul speaks to the Corinthian Christians, of all Christians, the messed up Corinthian Christians, many of them. And he says, you wait for the revealing, the apocalypse, apocalypsis of our Lord Jesus Christ, another term for his coming. You're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in light of that, this is motivation to keep pressing on toward that thing which we know we will attain. Philippians 3, starting in verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a prize to be won, and you will win it. And God's not going to let you quit either. So forget that. But press on. Because God will certainly do it. So preach this to yourself this week. When you're facing your sin. Or you're just going through trials and life just seems too hard. You're going to make it. Don't quit. God won't let you quit. What's more, he loves you. That's why he's doing this. Keep going. Now, that's the major part of this text, but there, there are other things as we wrap up here, and they'll take a little bit. That was the benediction of peace. The God of peace will sanctify you completely until that great day. He's faithful. Now there's a reminder to pray. Verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. It's pretty obvious. Obvious number one, it's a duty of God's family. Brothers, that's how he calls them. You're my brothers. I'm the great apostle, but you're my brothers. I need you to pray for me. It's a duty of God's family. We are Christians. We're all sons of God together. We are children in the same family. We must help each other by praying for each other. And I'm not saying this in a, a, uh, a doom and gloom attitude. But it's true. In our particular case, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not saying this because of a present situation i'm just saying this as a general principle our church could miserably fail at a number of levels if only a few of us are praying you understand that we are a body we are brothers and sisters in christ we all need each other's prayers remember take that in the context of what i just said god's going to get us there He's going to work on us and make us prayers as we ought to be. But you have a responsibility. Please pray for each other. 
And even for those who are ministers of the gospel, we're just your brothers. We need your prayers. It's a service to God's ministers. Paul and his ministry companions also need prayer. Your pastor and all those who preach and teach the word need prayer. We all need the God of peace to sanctify us completely. None of us has reached the prize to which God has called us. Brothers, pray for us. Please. And thank you that many of you do. Third, an instruction to kiss. If you weren't uncomfortable yet. An instruction to kiss. Verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, right out of the gate, uh, think of this somewhat as, in one sense, you could see it as Paul and his companions saying, well, you can't be there right now. Greet others on our behalf. Give them a hug for me, you might say, right? But do it for all the brothers. Well, let's, let's think about this carefully because it's such a foreign concept to us. It's a holy kiss and it's a family kiss. This isn't the only time, this isn't like one isolated time we see the holy kiss uh, instructed in the New Testament. Romans 16, 16 through 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Why do I read all that? Well, because I want you to see the context that's going to come up again and again. Often Paul brings up the holy kiss as a matter of church unity, as avoiding division, reminding us we're all in the same family, right? So, 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Peter mentions this, 1 Peter 5, 14, but he doesn't call it a holy kiss. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love, which sounds even squirmier to us. The kiss of love. But no, it's, it's a holy love. It's Christian love. And it's warm. Jeffrey Wyma, in his commentary, um, says, and this is, uh, his opinion, but I think it's well-founded. He says, The kiss expressed not merely friendship and love, but more specifically reconciliation and peace. And then he says, This is what makes Judas's kiss of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane so shocking and blasphemous. His action is motivated by an attitude that is completely opposite to its expected expression of unity and concord with the other person. 
That is, it's by Judas's outward token of peace and love that he betrays Jesus to death. He goes on, though. The kiss exchanged between believers soon was referred to by early Christians as the osculum pockets, or the kiss of peace. As a concrete expression of the oneness that exists between followers of Jesus, the exchange of the holy kiss naturally became an introductory step leading up to the celebration of the Eucharist, the Lord's table. A further outward act that also powerfully symbolized the unity of believers as the body of Christ. That's true. It's interesting how much information we have from the early centuries, how many writings we have where this comes up. The holy kiss. But it's a holy kiss. It's expressing our holy, set-apart, unique bond in Christ. And then it's a family kiss. Before I say more about the family kiss, let me read Acts 20, 36-38. When Paul had just met with the elders from the church at Ephesus for the last time. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's one good picture painted for us of the, the, the emotion, the, um, the, effect, the warm affection. Not just the formality of a kiss, but the, the attitude of it. This was not the equivalent of a handshake. It was a sign of family affection. And especially in the Gentile world of Thessalonica, Jews might have been a little different, but especially in the Gentile world of the day, it doesn't seem that people regularly kissed each other in public as a civil greeting. It was more of a private thing. So it made a big statement when the church, in their meetings, exchanged the holy kiss. Again, uh, as Gary Shogren says, the word for kiss, philema, is rooted in, rooted in the love word group, like phileo, Philadelphia. <laughs> it's a word for love. Here it consists of the kissing of people of both sexes. And he's basing that on evidence from the early church. Kissing was hardly normal within the Greco-Roman context. Kissing was a family matter. Yet even between married couples, public displays of affection were considered crude or socially awkward. Within Judaism, kissing was reserved for family members, but was hardly common. In fact, some have said there is no basis in ancient texts, Jewish and Greco-Roman, outside the New Testament, for the transformation of the kiss into a sign of religious community. He says, for members of a congregation to kiss one another was not simply a show of affection. It was the affirmation that the church is the true family. The martyrs of Carthage in the story of Perpetua and Felicitas, Felicity. Um, in that story, the martyrs of Carthage went to their execution, but first kissed one another, that they might consummate their martyrdom with the kiss of peace. Uh, Justin Martyr writes that they would exchange the holy kiss right before the communion. There's disagreement about what this looked like. Some have tried to say it was a kiss on both cheeks, but there's other evidence that it was probably a kiss on the mouth originally. Um, you go to some Slavic countries, and that's how they do it in church often. Don't get nervous yet. Just realize I'm trying to p- paint the picture for you, all right? 
But, as Jeff Wyma says, Paul's command to greet others with a holy kiss expresses more than an exhortation simply to greet each other. It serves rather as a challenge to his readers to remove any hostility that may exist among them and to exhibit the oneness that they share as fellow members of the body of Christ. Funny story. The 3rd century A.D., uh, apparently some bishops decided... um, they would make the kiss greeting a, a, a test of peace and harmony right before the Lord's table and um, uh, to see if anyone was harboring anger toward another so that at the last moment, if the bishop saw these people aren't kissing each other, he would reconcile them on the spot if he could. <laughs> that's not Bible. That's just third century what happened. But you, you get the point, but it signified to everybody. Now, I do not believe that a Christian today in Portland, Oregon, is in sin for literally for not literally kissing others at church. We all breathe a sigh of relief. But I also know that cultural discomfort can be an excuse to avoid serious application of principles the apostles taught, right? The tendency of northern European culture to avoid a lot of physical affection is probably a weakness, not a strength in light of the Bible. So we need to be open to further sanctification in certain ways sometimes. We could stand to learn from Christians in other cultures and not assume that things are inherently inappropriate just because they make us uncomfortable. By the way, it seems even the church in its early centuries cooled toward the holy kiss over the centuries until it became a very regulated ritual with a bunch of rules and then it died off in the Western churches, though it continued in the East. I won't go into all that right now. Robert Cara, a Presbyterian who got his doctorate from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, teaches at RTS Charlotte. Uh, He says this, he says, I grew up in a coal mining region in northeastern Pennsylvania. No, we certainly did not hug or kiss our friends. (laughs) As an adult, he says, I moved to the southeastern United States where there was more hugging, although I did not like it. I often go for short trips to Ukraine. There I am hugged and kissed by females and also by males. I am slowly getting used to it, but only just, it says. He's not the only one I've heard this from. Before I move on, let me quote from a COVID-era sermon that I preached early 2021. It was called Prolonged Social Distancing in the Church. I don't want us to forget some hard reminders from the recent days of social distancing that such things should not be a new norm for the church of Jesus Christ. As I said then, if we are to obey the apostles and the Lord who speaks through them, then we must show with our bodies that we love each other. That includes physical displays of affection. As Dr. Sam Waldron said in a sermon from 2020, He says, now this being the case, covering some topics like we just covered, we cannot shuffle off these commands by saying some of the terrible stuff that evangelicals say today. That was just their culture. But that, he says, is what people are saying about the biblical commands regarding marriage and homosexuality. That was just their culture. Or that was just, that was then, this is now. And if you use that hermeneutic, you can write off everything in the New Testament and still call yourself a Christian, he says. On that occasion, I also said, 
given potential confusion in our current culture, I don't plan to plant a kiss on one of our deacons any time during my ministry here. But it should be normal to perhaps clasp their hand and clap them on the back. It should not be scandalous. If one of my sisters in Christ gives me the sort of appropriate hug, she might give her flesh and blood brother. Men, you don't have to be effeminate or perverted to embrace your brothers in Christ. Ladies, you should feel great liberty to clasp your sisters in a show of affection. If you would rather stay on the other side of the room, something's very wrong. Our culture may get the willies at such public displays of affection, but the church should be a place where its members are close and affectionate. They are immediate family after all. We aren't cousins. We are brothers and sisters. We have the same father and the same elder brother who brought us all into the family at the cost of his own life. And we will enjoy the entirety of the same inheritance together, dwelling together in the father's house for all eternity. That's why I said in 2021, I still stand by it. Let's not forget those lessons and the preciousness of being in the same room together and personally greeting each other warmly. All right. An adjuration to read. Verse 27. I adjure you, or the ESV says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So it's a solemn oath. It's as if Paul is placing an oath on the church to read this epistle to the whole church. And it's a family reading to all the brothers. Again, emphasizing there could be divisions in the church. He wants them all to get the same message from him, right? So they're all on the same page. One minor application. That's why I might, um, though it's not a legalistic thing, if you're ever gone, you're out or anything. But that's why pastors are so, uh, so concerned that people be in as many of the same services as possible, hearing the same thing from God's word. So we're on the same page, right? It's important. Fifth and last, a benediction of grace. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of everything we need, all God's favor to us. Everything you need is found in your Lord Jesus Christ. As we said this morning, he's the cornerstone. And it's grace for his people. This isn't just a fond wish of the apostle, but it's, it's also what he expects God to do for them. God's children share his grace and peace with a view to their final holiness. To adapt a phrase I don't like often in different settings, we're all in this together. And we're all headed to the same place. We're all headed to final holiness. Yeah, it'll be hard sometimes to let our affection for each other outweigh other things going on. But one day we will all be perfect people. We're all going to live together as perfect people one day. In a new heaven and a new earth, we all have the same God, the same Lord, who gives us all grace and peace together. So let's act as a body as the household of God, as we said this morning. And God's grace and peace will see us through. We'll make it together.
hope that's your heartbeat and what's driving you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful promises to us. Thank you for telling us things that make us uncomfortable. Also, help us to to be more like Jesus Christ from our innermost being all the way out to the tips of our fingers and toes. In all we think and say and do. Thank you that complete holiness is ours. One day we will experience it when we see Christ face to face. Help us to work on it now. Help us to to do things, all things recognizing also it's not just us individually, but us together as one body who will make it together. Help us to encourage each other along the way and to be of one mind and one heart in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.